I was standing in the back thinking uh, about the fact that all of our children were leaving, and I was thinking, well, why are our children leaving? And then I remembered they were leaving so that people who come to the church who are not familiar with having children sit in church are, are able to have a place to go where uh, they don't have to worry about their kids. And then I thought, well, but in order for those people to, to come, they have to be invited. And so it kind of seemed weird to see them all leaving this morning. Because I thought, well, all right, Children's Church apparently is just for us. But then I thought, well, no, that's not true. So I hope some of you enjoy having your children in Children's Church. But more than that, I hope all of us will make a point of uh, being sensitive and loving to those who have no hope in this world. And this continues to be an area where we as a church have not been obedient. And I want us to be obedient as your shepherd. I want you to speak of Jesus Christ and to bring people here who who need to know him. Now, this morning, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We've already read the text once in our Advent time, but let us read it again so that we see the context. I want us to study this morning... um, the nature of the promise in the Old Testament of the coming of the Messiah, but specifically the meaning of the name that he's given both in Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, and here in Matthew chapter 1. So let us hear the word of God as it's recorded in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, and betrothal is a period usually of an year, a year in, uh, in Israel where the two families negotiate, the two individuals say that they're willing, and then they have a year of betrothal. Now, in that year, um, the, the wife is actually the wife. In other words, the woman is referred to as the wife. The only thing that could break the betrothal was death or divorce. And so she was referred to as the wife, but there was only one thing missing, and that was... Everything pointed forward to the point when, at the end of the betrothal, the husband would come for the wife and what? He would physically take her to his home, to his bed. And so betrothal was a time which was much more intense and committed than our engagement, but a time when there was to be no physical intimacy. And it all looked forward to the moment of fulfillment when she would come to his house and they would then be intimate. So we read here that Mary had been betrothed. They're in this year period between betrothal and marriage, had been betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, and that's a way of saying they were not intimate, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. 
And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Now another note before we get to the center of our study this morning. Look at that verse 25. It says, but kept her a virgin until. There's no way to look at the construction of the original language Greek and to think of Mary being a perpetual virgin. Uh, It's very clear from the text that he kept her a virgin until a moment, and that after that they resumed and had the relations that are normal with a man and with a woman, with his wife. So after recording for us how the angel of the Lord revealed to Joseph that it was God's will and power that had made his betrothed Mary pregnant, that this was not the result of her unfaithfulness to him, and the angel telling him from God that he was to stand by Mary and to support her. Matthew, if you look at verses 22 and 23, Matthew inserts these verses as an editorial note to us as his readers. It's a parenthetical note where he explains something to us. Now, some of you have read the whole way through the book of Romans, and you've read long enough to know in the Apostle Paul that sometimes whole chapters of Scripture are parenthetical notes of the Apostle Paul. You know, he'll be going in one direction, and he'll say, now, and he'll go in this direction, and you'll be completely lost. You know, what connection did that have? But slowly and surely, he works his way back. Um, Carol Canfield says that often my sermons are characterized by my going way off over here. And she says sometimes in the middle of sermons she prays, oh, Lord, bring him back. All right. Well, this is a very short parenthetical note. But it's an important one. And this is where we will focus our attention. Here is the parenthesis. Now all this took place to fulfill. What was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Okay, so here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew tells us that the details of Christ's conception and birth are neither accidental nor inconsequential. Rather, they are part of a grand design that God has set in place for many hundreds of years, which finally, at that very moment, is in process of being fulfilled. And it's not in the process of being fulfilled in sort of general direction, sort of general fulfillment. Well, you know, that kind of reminds me of such and such. But this is a very specific fulfillment. This is a fulfillment right down to the last crossing of the T and dotting of the I. Now, each gospel writer has a certain emphasis or personality. And we're reading in Matthew, and Matthew is the gospel writer who's most noted for his emphasis on the many ways that Jesus' birth and life and death fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Again and again, in the book of Matthew, we read words to this effect, and so it was fulfilled. Now, Matthew is very concerned to show how God proves the truth of what the Old Testament prophets had written concerning the coming Messiah. More than any other writer, Matthew records the prophecies of the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled. And this short comment, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the word through the prophet, should teach us the high view of Scripture that we should have. 
Because what we see here is that Matthew is quoting scripture and is pointing to the fact that God incarnate, Jesus Christ, even in the method of his conception, in the presence, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then you look at this all through his life, down to his death, down even to the point that Jesus himself testifies as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man, all right? So even down to the length of time that Jesus was in the grave, every single part of his life is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's constantly demonstrating the truth of God's word. But there's another thing in the text here that shows us the authority and the trustworthiness of Scripture. And that is, note that when Matthew quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, what exactly does he say? Well, look at verse 22 and you'll see that he says, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. But is that what it says? What does it actually say? All this took place to fulfill what? To fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Is that what it says? (laughs) No, it's not. It says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophet You see, a prophet is someone who foretells what God is going to do. And it doesn't really matter which prophet it was. Now, you can argue that all the Jews would have known it was Isaiah, just as we, by listening to Handel's Messiah, we would know that also. If Jesus were to come today, we would, through the Messiah, have this constant repeating in our minds as Jewish children were raised knowing Scripture. And they would know that. But nevertheless, note that what Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says about it is not that this took place to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, but rather what the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, said. Now, is the point obvious? Do you get it? You should get it quickly, because the point is that in the New Testament, to say that a prophet wrote something and to say that God said something is the same thing. The prophets did not speak of their own will or inclination, but the prophets spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This last week, I had the wonderful privilege of being able to go down to the local community radio station, WFHB, and record a program on the Kinsey research and the Kinsey report, and I was Uh, opposite the table from a local pastor, Jimmy Moore, who's uh, on the staff of First Methodist. And we started out talking about things, but, but after a while, I got the feeling that our wheels were stuck in the mud and that we were going to spend the whole program simply talking about things that there was some degree of agreement about. And so where do you think I went to show the disagreement? Well... I I hope you're guessing that I went to Scripture. Because the world today is divided. Now, if you were to say the world is divided between Islam and Christianity, in a sense, that's true. But uh, at one point I said to them that uh, all through history, um, again and again, uh, 
the question comes down to the nature of Scripture. And then I said, now, Scripture is not just one of the sacred books, you know, like the Quran, all right? But that Scripture is a unique testimony that it is the only book that God himself has written, that it stands above every other holy book of every other religion all through time. All right. Why do I say that? Do I say that because that helps my own sort of Republican inclinations? You know, is it all politics? No. I say that because I'm a man under authority. And what authority am I under? I'm under the authority of Scripture. And so when I speak publicly, whether it's over a radio station or here this morning, I am to be under Scripture. And when Matthew writes publicly, Matthew is to be under Scripture. And when you make a decision with your checkbook, you're to be under Scripture. And when you decide whether to look at a woman, you're to be under Scripture. You understand? We are people under authority. One of the most pernicious attacks upon biblical faith that has happened in our time is when Jesus Christ is used in such a way as to deny the authority of God in the life of Christians. You know? No, 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 no. It's amazing how Christians that want to talk only of grace and nothing about obedience or keeping the covenant, when they go to Scripture, all of a sudden they say, you know, Scripture is absolutely the authority of God at stake. So all of a sudden you get authority when it comes to the inspiration of Scripture. But when it comes to my own personal life, it's all loosey-goosey. No, if Scripture has authority, if Jesus has said heaven and earth will pass away before a single jot or tittle of my law will pass away, all right, then as Christians, how dare we act as if we have been freed up from all authority in our lives because of Jesus. It sounds good, but it's bogus. But that's precisely what is at stake in this discussion over the issue of the Kinsey Report. You know, is sexuality completely removed from any accountability to God? God who made Adam and made Eve and made them for one another. All right. Is that God now no longer concerned about how we express physical intimacy? Is is this the God that we worship? Well, the answer is no. How do we know it? Because Scripture must be fulfilled. All right? And here we see, even in the issue of the conception of Jesus Christ, we see that Matthew sends a signal to those of us with ears to hear, saying, this is to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, but that's not what it says. What is this to fulfill? It is to fulfill the word of God. Okay? So if you are torn between, on the one hand, believing that Scripture is just one more holy book, or even if you're willing to say, well, but it's a superior holy book, you haven't yet begun to understand what Matthew himself testifies about the Word of God, nor what Jesus constantly lived out. I mean, regardless of what Matthew says about the fulfillment, what about the fact that when Jesus was conceived in the womb of a woman, it had to be a virgin because that's what had been prophesied in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. All right? That God incarnate, when he came to this earth, was placed in the belly of a woman. Couldn't Jesus have sprung full-formed? And why did he have to be put into a woman's belly? And why a virgin? Because Scripture has to be fulfilled. Do Do you understand this? So don't get snookered 
by all the sophisticated intellectuals and, 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 and uh, proud women and men who will try to seduce you to have a superior attitude towards this holy book and to look at it as a record of one people's uh, sort of pilgrimage to the knowledge of the holy. <laughs> you know? Doesn't that sound good? You know, here we have a well-meaning group of people in the ancient world who recorded what God showed to them. Right? Now, this book with print, with ink, with paper, what is written here is unique. And one day, you yourself will be a fulfillment of this book. That's all you'll be. All right. One day, you will stand in the presence of the living God. And you will be judged on the basis of your response to this book. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And when you stand in his presence, and you are called to judgment, Will you stand in your righteousness? No, because you will answer, according to Romans, there is what? None, not even one. All right? You will acknowledge that all of your inclinations from birth have been to evil. And you will do it with joy on your face, because it will glorify your Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at the things in your life that are difficult right now, you will give thanks for them. Why? Because Scripture tells you that absolutely nothing comes to your life except it passes through the hand of this one who has purchased your soul. And so you know that it's sanctification. You know that your marriage is sanctification. You know that your sickness, that the death of your loved ones, that the financial problems that you're in, all of this is coming from God. And you trust it because the Bible says it. And you know that one day all of the troubles that we have in this life will be gone because the Bible says that in heaven there will be no more sickness and sorrow and pain. But there will be perfect joy in the presence of the Lord. And so the first thing I want you to notice from this text is, when it says a little insignificant thing, like all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said, that it's not insignificant at all. And there's absolutely not one word of Scripture that is insignificant. And you have to make a decision in your life. And your decision is, do you trust God in his word? Or do you trust yourself? And brothers and sisters, <laughs> um, I, I worked with these two Irish guys in Boston cleaning carpet for the Cabot Corporation when I was in seminary. Absolutely, and my brother and everybody that worked with them, we ended up absolutely loving them. And the, 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 the leader was Danny. But Danny was like 50, 55, old at the time. Now that's my age. But anyhow, um, sometimes you get into trouble doing your work. And they had a saying, um, and the saying, was that, uh, the saying was this, I'm me, lads, that's the rub. And uh, what they meant was, here's the real problem. And I was about to say, boy, you want to talk about the real problem. The real problem is that you and I have a great deal of difficulty being dependent on God. And it's because we are self-willed and we are proud. All of you have seen it, a little child. 
little child that has a solution to that child's problem right in front of them. It's right there. But will that little child, boy or girl, will they ask for help? Will they allow their parents to help them? Absolutely not. Why? Because self-will is in the very fiber of our being. We will not be dependent on God. And if you don't see this in your life, you're not being honest with yourself. We do not like to be dependent on God. And so it all comes back again and again to whether Scripture is true and whether we're going to trust God or ourselves. And if we trust God, we have to forsake trust in ourselves. But God's Word never fails, and it didn't fail when Jesus Christ was put in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, Jesus Christ was put in this womb, and we know from Scripture that this was simply a fulfillment of what God had said in the Old Testament. But then we ask ourselves the question, all right, how was it a fulfillment? Once we're willing to go down the path of this being a fulfillment, then we have to ask, well, how was it a fulfillment? In other words, we're prepared intellectually to believe that there was a prophecy in the Old Testament that pointed forward to a virgin who would conceive and give birth to his son. We're prepared to believe that this man, Jesus, who's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is a fulfillment of an Old Testament and many Old Testament prophecies. But if we turn our focus and we look specifically at the prophecy that Matthew here is pointing to, which I do want us to do, it gets a little bit complicated as to how we can look back at the Old Testament and what is said, and then look here in the New Testament, pointing back to the Old Testament and say, well, now, wait a second, that seems a little bit weird. So turn with me to to Isaiah chapter 7, please. Isaiah was a prophet, someone who foretold what God was going to do. And I want to describe the situation a little bit in his time. In the time of Isaiah, the people of God who entered the promised land, all right, had been separated into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and there was the southern kingdom of Judah, all right? And the northern and southern kingdoms had different kings. And if we look at the time of this writing of the book of Isaiah, it's about 735 to 740 B.C. And at this time, the king of Judah down in the south, King Ahaz, is facing a very, very serious problem. For a number of years, the Jewish nation had been separated into these two independent kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And in the 500 years of their occupation of the promised land, many times the Jews in the promised land had been attacked by different enemies. Now, typically, and you know, if you read through Judges and you read through the other Old Testament history, you know that typically one of the most frequent uh, groups of people that attacked them were the Philistines, right? A lot of those great stories in the Old Testament come in the conflict with the Philistines. And there were a number of other nations around them that would attack them. And, and it happened sporadically, and sometimes they won, sometimes they lost. But no matter how many losses they had, the people of God in the Promised Land have never lost their independence in a permanent way, and there had never been an overwhelming national force of oppression which was so victorious over the whole region that it was able to bring down all the countries of that region into subjugation 
never, that is, until the middle of the 8th century B.C., with the awesome rise to power of the Assyrian Empire, which is now known as Iran and Iraq. All right? And then something categorically different than anything that had happened before hit the people of God. And that is Tiglath-Pileser and his Assyrian hordes came and they began to hit. And it, it was like moving from a gentle April uh, rain to moving down off Cape Good Hope and getting hit with the worst that the Southern Hemisphere can hit you, what Lord Shackleton uh, would have dreaded. All right, And they got hit by the Assyrians and it was an unbelievable intense attack upon all of those little nations. Assyria took the path of empire in earnest, John Bright says, and the cloud long lowering on the horizon became a line storm that swept the little peoples before it like leaves. The northern state Israel snapped before the blast and went crashing down, and though Judah managed to survive for a century and a half, she was never, save for one brief interval, to know political independence again. So you have the terrible tyranny of Tiglath-Pileser III and his Assyrian Empire, and a crisis develops in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's in the middle of this crisis that the prophecy of Isaiah comes. As a result of the terrible oppression of Tiglath-Pileser, Pekah, who was king of the northern kingdom of Israel, put together a local coalition of the nations that surrounded them. All right? And they decided to mount a rebellion against Assyria. Uh, Damascus' king, King Rezin, joined in. Pekah tried to enlist then, in addition to Rezin, he tried to enlist King Ahaz of Judah in the south. All right? But what happened? King Ahaz refused. He would not join in the rebellion. Okay? Now, this angered the kings up north, Pekah and Rezin. And so they felt that if they were going to have a rebellion against Assyria, it needed to be a united rebellion. So they attempted to bring Judah around to their way of thinking by attacking her. All right. Then, just when she was under attack from these northern kingdoms, Judah suffered attacks on two other sides. At the very same time, she was attacked by the Edomites to her southeast and the Philistines to her west. So Judah was surrounded by feeding sharks. It was a grim moment in the nation of Judah, armies invading her simultaneously on three of her borders, and behind those armies loomed a nation of overwhelming power. And that was Assyria. And right then, King Ahaz decided that rather than deal with all these little nations, he would appeal to the Assyrians. He would rather be oppressed by a big, huge empire than a bunch of little gnats, right? So he decides he's going to go to the king of Assyria and ask for help, for protection. But Isaiah says to him, do not go to Assyria. But guess what he does? He goes to Assyria. And if you read scripture, you'll, say, you'll see that King Ahaz's, it says in Isaiah 7, heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. All right? And so the Lord gave a message to Isaiah to give to King Ahaz and all of the house of Israel. And the message was this. 
beginning with verse 13 of Isaiah 7. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. So here's the situation, and here's the prophecy. Now ask yourself the question, if Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking to Ahaz and to his people and is telling them that God has these things under control and uses as a sign that a virgin will conceive and that that virgin's conceived child will be Emmanuel, namely God with us. And then the fulfillment of that is what? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, how can it be a sign to King Ahaz and his people? How can you say this will be a sign when they will never see it? They'll die. Now, there are two possible answers. One is that Isaiah, in writing this, sees it and is able to speak of it and to make the promise, even though the fulfillment will come centuries later. And this is often done in Scripture. Many died longing to see the things that were spoken of in Scripture and never seeing them. Even Hebrews in the Hall of, of, of Faith tells us of those who died never seeing the fulfillment but knowing they had it in heaven. The other possibility is that there are two fulfillments. One in the time of King Ahaz that they did see but that the glorious fulfillment was Jesus Christ that they didn't see but when Christ came everybody understood that there was a dual fulfillment. Now, does this make sense to you? Now, what is the name of this child? Well, both Isaiah and Matthew named the child, and the name of the child is Emmanuel. All right? And what does Emmanuel mean? Well, the word Emmanuel means El is God, and Iman, or imminent, we have a word similar to it. It means with us. So the name Emmanuel, as the text says, is God with us. Now, why would this child prophesied about be named God with us? Let me ask another question. What is the real problem in your life? If you were to today, I say, write down on a scrap of paper what you'd like me to pray for. We'll all join together and pray for your main concern in your life. What would you write down? Would you write down that you have financial problems? That you have people problems? That you have health problems? That you miss a loved one? What would you write down? How many of you would write down that your main problem is that you want God with you? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, that God came walking in the cool. In other words, he came to be intimate with them. But it tells us that in the minute that they sinned, what did they do? They, they went and they hid. The Bible tells us that Enoch was a man of God. Why? 
Because the Bible says Enoch walked with God and was no more. The Bible tells us that David was intimate with God. Being a sinner, it says that David was a man after God's own heart. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that wisdom, which is a way of speaking of God in the book of Proverbs, that wisdom will come and dwell with the man that diligently seeks her. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he who would come to God must believe that he what? That he exists and that he is a what? A rewarder of them who diligently seek him. What is the main problem in your life? What is it? Some of you have heard me say years ago that one of the favorite songs I remember uh, from my days slopping pigs is uh, Eric Clapton's In the Presence of the Lord. Well, in preparation for this sermon, I actually went and read the lyrics. Don't bother. (laughs) The only good phrase is in the presence of the Lord, and actually that occurs less often than the phrase in the color of the Lord, whatever that means, you know. Um, But that phrase resonated with me as a young man slopping pigs, and by that I mean off living a life of rebellion. I have foundly found a way to live in the presence of the Lord. What is the main problem of your life that you would ask for prayer for? You know, Brother Andrew was a, uh, was a lay brother in, in the 17th century who spent his time in the kitchen. And he was sent out to buy the wine. He hated it. He was lame. He just couldn't handle it. And a book was written about his life. And the book was the practice of what? Of the presence of God. Jesus Christ is called Emmanuel because this division that happened in the Garden of Eden and that has happened in every one of our lives, born corrupt, we then sin of our own free will and we do it and we do it and we do it and we do it. We sin against our conscience constantly. This division, this lack of intimacy is the greatest tragedy of your life and mine. Augustine, at the the very beginning of the Confessions, says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are not at rest until they rest in thee. And in your heart, you know that you've been made for God. You haven't been made for your wife or husband. That's just a picture of our union with God. And so, what is it about Jesus? Is it the sentimentality and the babies and the manger and the cows lowing and, you know, candlelight services at Christmas that tugs at your heart? Or is it the fact that this baby, Jesus, is Emmanuel, God with us? And you know what with us means? It really means God for us. This child who is God himself, takes human flesh, is put in the virgin's womb, goes through the birth canal, is born into a manger, suffers and suffers and is humiliated and is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Yet, surely, 
He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. All we like sheep had gone astray. We had turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the meaning of Emmanuel. God with us. God for us. God in the virgin's womb. God incarnate bearing our sin. Do you believe he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? Do you seek this God? He says himself, those who come to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.